This is the Roaring Elephant podcast for the 23rd of August 2018. A podcast about a batch of Hadoop and the surrounding ecosystem for anybody working with or investigating big data and advanced analytics. My name is John. Here is my co-host Dave. How are you doing? I'm surviving. <laughs> ah, is the poor boy a little bit sick? Yeah, uh, getting better, getting better. Uh, hoping to get better, I hope. <sighs> Not Still. trusting you that far, really. I don't Still. think it's going to get any better. People have to suffer us the way we are. <laughs> it's just a good job <laughs> that I can't infect you with my terrible, terrible condition of the airwaves. Yeah. <clears throat> In the past, you always called it allergy or something like that. Lurgy. 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 Yeah, I like yeah. the word. But uh, So far goes the uh, lesson in English uh, vocabulary for not in- non-English speakers. Um, before we go further with the topic show today, we have to mention, of course, our uh, giveaways. Uh, the two events are quite close by now. The H2O World event in London is uh, end of this month. Uh, we still have uh, some uh, free tickets for people that want to attend. Uh, please send an email to h2olondon18 at roaringelephant.org. I've been tweeting about that, so you should be able to find out how to do that without, any, without much uh, effort. Second event is uh, one day later, Solix Empower, but that's in New York, so if you want to do both, it's a bit of a travel uh, <laughs> conflict, perhaps. But, but doable. But doable still, yeah, if you really want to go for it, it's doable. And there should be two quite different kinds of uh, events. If you want more information, uh, have a listen to our previous episodes where we had people from both H2O and Solix uh, on the show to talk about the respective events. Uh, the Solix Empower uh, giveaway had ended, all tickets had gone out, but the Solix guys gave us more tickets to give away, so it's up again. Send email to solixempower18 at roaringelephant.org. Uh, do it fast, because again, these uh, events are happening in a couple of weeks already. So this is probably going to be the last chance you get to attend these uh, great events for free. Indeed. Did I say that well? Pretty good. <laughs> then let's move into the topic of the show. For uh, It's been a long time, actually, that we did a show with just the two of us, which wasn't a news episode. Yeah. But uh, we have no interview today. It's just Dave and me. So uh, that was the click of all those people skipping the rest of the episode. <laughs> so for, for, for all five people that are left, welcome. Welcome. Hi, Mom. <laughs> Hi, Dad. <laughs> <laughs> yes, indeed. So we have a, uh, a just a, a discussion episode around the... Uh, well, the, the title that Jon put together that is about, in uh, to quote him, as clickbaity as he gets, uh, how public cloud change big data, which I think is is, is fair. Yeah, it's a bit uh, a hot topic again uh, recently, so I thought Definitely. it was good to uh, again have our little view on that one. So, uh, yeah, we actually have prepared notes this time, doesn't happen often. We do. Which <laughs> is actually kind of really throwing me off, to be honest. disturbing. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's all laid out in front of us. God, what on earth are we yeah. doing? Maybe we should just post the notes on the internet and call it quits. I mean, the shortest yeah. episode ever, done. Yeah, there we go. Done and dusted. For, nah, for, that, well, I mean, there's all only five people listening anyway, so we may as well just <laughs> carry on talking to them. Um, yeah. Yeah, so I, I think the, the way that we way we decided that we'd kind of walk through this is a, a really a bit of a, almost a bit of a history lesson, a bit of a refresher on... The journey that uh, that big data has gone through. That's fair to say. Yeah. I mean, the best way to understand changes is to know where they came from and why there was something else before it changed, right? 
Mm-hmm. And I guess traditionally, in, in the olden days, when uh, trees were still, were still talking and uh, things like that, and elves uh, flew around in the forests, uh, Hadoop came up uh, in a big data world, before it was called big data, and those were traditionally on-prem clusters. Uh, yep. There was no public cloud because there was no public cloud in those days. Things like Amazon, Azure, and Google Cloud, maybe they existed in some kind of uh, very fetal way, but there were no way as prevalent as you are today. So basically, organizations only had a choice to put a big Linux cluster in their own data centers and run their big data and advanced analytics workloads on that cluster. Yep. Typically, only organizations that actually had a lot of data were actually only were actually looking at this. Think of the Yahoo's and the Googles that uh, started this whole uh, movement, if I can call it that. Yep. So these guys actually well, had a good fit because they had a lot of data. They already had pretty large data infrastructures as well. So for them, it was pretty much a no-brainer to put it in their own uh, offices. Uh, well, not in the office, perhaps. <laughs> but that might be quite hot and noisy. <laughs> hey, it's called passive uh, heating of homes. Um, <laughs> it's all ecological but uh, in those days it made perfect sense just to work with that uh, that, uh, that paradigm let's say and yeah I had a third option there a third uh, bullet point there as well where basically they also were the only companies that were able to attract the experts in the field needed to make that stuff work because at, I mean uh, go ahead I, I would I would sort of uh, I would question that because I actually I think there weren't any experts in the field at that <laughs> well, time. I think they they it wasn't that they were able to attract the the few field experts. They actually developed those field exactly. experts and themselves. Kept them. Yeah, and you know maybe they would move from from one to the other very occasionally. But essentially, the the concepts, the tools, the technologies were all you know really homegrown at that time. They yeah. were really sort of local versions of this technology and. You know the the whole open source movement. We've discussed the sort of the rise of of Hadoop, the rise and rise of Hadoop, rather than the rise and fall um, on previous episodes. But it was very much the case that these organisations, um, as you say, were really the only people looking at this. They were the only people that had uh, a, such a wide variety of data still in so many kind of different silos that they needed a single place, a single point of view where they could mm-hmm. contain all of this data in a single environment. Um, so, you know, the number of organizations that were playing with these kind of things at this time was relatively small. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the statement I'm more trying to make was the fact that they had the shoulders that other people could stand on to see further. Yeah, yeah, they yeah. Had the Very much things so. there. And, uh, well, you've been avoiding the word data lake, but basically that's where the data lake concept kind of originated. And Hadoop was the first incarnation of how you could actually build and maintain a data lake at that point. Yep. But then, of course, the evil marketing got their hands on the whole thing. <laughs> is this is this the uh, the loyalty card thing? No, 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 no. I'm just talking more about the hype around it. Because when uh, uh, I'm not upset marketing, it should be more adver- no advertisement either. How would you say this? Just a, I mean, public. Uh, we're looking at what these big companies were doing it, and they were making millions and billions of dollars with uh, this whole big data thing. So you had the hype starting. And mm-hmm. marketeers were hyping it even higher. And yeah, more and more people were looking at the big data at that point. And the the thing that I think was changing is that um, also the technologies were becoming somewhat more and more um, well understood. You know, there were people now not just in Google and 
um, Yahoo that, that had some sort of understanding about what was going on. The open source side of things had really started to kick off. Mm-hmm. And the, there was a wider community of people um, interested um, in this kind of technology. And also there were organizations spinning up that were just purely focused around big data. So things like, by this point, you know, LinkedIn and that sort of thing was was very much um, a, you know, a big data-driven organization. Yeah, it kind of shifted from being a, a solution to becoming a product, from being a program yeah. to being something marketable at that point. Yeah, yeah. And I also think that the fact that uh, Yahoo in that time kind of uh, splintered up a little bit, I mean, Yahoo had a bit of uh, economical issues at that point, I think, and people left Yahoo to start new things, and that's mm-hmm. how the new uh, yeah, product, uh, productionized distributions and stuff like that were started. But still at that point, it was still very much on-prem big clusters for big data, really big data, petabytes of data solutions, right? Yeah, yeah, very much, largely. Um, but as you say, the things were things were shifting, and whether it was through marketing or through just business people <laughs> thinking, well, um, you know, if these guys can make lots of money or save lots of money using big data, maybe I can do it too. Mm-hmm. The sort of the groundswell of people looking at what the big boys were doing, as it were, yeah, yeah, and we're yeah. trying to work out how do how do we pivot what they've done into what we're doing on a daily basis. Yeah, 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 yeah. and yeah, through the the fact that yeah, everybody wants to do it, more people yeah. became available, and there was all of this hype around. Hey, just do just change your name into big data, and you'll make uh, billions on the, on the stock exchange. <laughs> Yep. True fact. Yep. Yeah, there was that. But then you have a little point there with the center of gravity of data shifting, which I don't really get. Please explain for me. Well, so I think possibly this is a little bit, this particular point is probably a little bit early in the journey, but the the point I was trying All to right. get to yeah. is is uh, is the at a certain point in time, it made perfect sense, as we were saying earlier, to have your big data environment on-prem because you were getting all your data from yeah. on-prem. Now yeah, you mentioned LinkedIn. As, yeah, exactly. As as these organizations uh, and as the ecosystem started to change, you started to see you know, public cloud uh, have more relevance. You started to pe- see people um, have things like web services. You started to see more IoT workloads. And you started to see people not just being interested in the data that was coming from their you know, on-site manufacturing systems or production systems or their SAP environment (laughs) or whatever it might be that that was traditionally their core focus, now they're starting to think, well, actually there's all of this data out there, not just uh, data that maybe they're generating. So we can talk about IoT systems, you talk about sort of apps on phones and things like that that could be a, a source of data, but also public data sets um, are becoming more and more prevalent. And, you know, those exist on the uh, uh, on the cloud. Those exist in sort of places where they're not necessarily connected to your on-prem environment. So as the center of gravity shifts from on-prem towards cloud, the, the sort of the direction that people are thinking about it is also shifting. Yeah, 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 and that also kind of created this mismatch between having these big clusters on premise in small organizations that don't really have big data centers to put it in there and don't have people to maintain that stuff. Mm-hmm. Again, a Hadoop cluster—it's a lot cheaper than an HPC cluster. I mean, a lot cheaper than an HPC cluster, but it's still a cost, right? It's still a 
cluster you need to maintain with a 10 with dozens of servers in there so it's not something that's for free either and yeah that's also the point where i see i think that the industry saw a lot of clusters that really weren't set up right because they were just too small they weren't balanced uh, nobody was managing the thing so they just crashed all the time and that's kind of where big data got this a bit of a bad name, I'd say, where yeah, yeah. it became yeah, that big data thing. You don't want to do that because it's way too complicated and it doesn't work. And if it works, you don't know what it does and it's annoying and blah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think a lot of this came from a place where people were um, experimenting with it but had still very little knowledge about mm-hmm. how it worked. Because although people were becoming, you know, in the marketplace, becoming more... Um, more common that you would have people that knew big data skills still relatively uh, relatively rare in the grand scheme yeah, of yeah. things so it, while the overall knowledge was increasing the number of organizations uh, interested in big data were far outstripping mm-hmm. the demand of people so it was still quite a painful time of, of growth where lots of people were you know, getting kicking off big data programs and then these are also the same people that, you know, here, two years, three years down the line would end up shelving them, cancelling them, yep. or at the very least scaling them back because they, they just couldn't work out what they'd done with it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the fact is that there are still organisations today that are in this sort yep. of place Definitely. because they, you know, either they started with a more of a view of, you know, if we build the perfect data lake, then <laughs> we'll suddenly magically start to make money. Um, or or people just with with sort of a, a lack of understanding about mm-hmm. what they were trying to achieve in the first place. Yeah, I've uh, been talking we, about that we, earlier, right? You have to have a use case before you start doing stuff like that. Sure, it's it's fine to have a, a little hobby project to just in, intellectually learn new stuff, but when an organization yeah. deploys big data, you should have at least at least some kind of idea of how this thing would potentially make money. Even if it doesn't work yeah. out, at least have a direction to go into. If you don't have that, it just remains a, a hobby project, nothing more than that. I mean, one of one of the one of the most common things that I mention is that you know, big data shouldn't actually end up costing you anything. I mean, it, it, it should, should be, be either yeah, it, well, not just that. It, it should be either making money as yep. as some sort of revenue generating thing or, or it should be saving the organization money because of something that it's able to do faster cheaper whatever it might be um and so the, the cost of running a big data system should be nothing but a rounding error you know the mm-hmm. the fact is if it isn't saving an organization significantly more than it's costing to run it or making an organization significant cost more than it's costing to run it or both of those things then you're kind of doing it wrong and you mm-hmm. definitely should stop doing it and you should kind of take a long hard look at why you started doing big data in the first place mm-hmm. and as you say like start with a handful of you know in some cases relatively simple use cases um and you know grow it from there grow it organically mm-hmm. I would kind of say there's one exception there. I mean, if you're doing something mm-hmm. of public uh, public use, I mean, I wouldn't call Wikipedia a big data application, although it have a lot of data in there, and it's definitely a source of big data. But that's something that's uh, useful for a lot of people while they don't really make money on it. I mean, I guess they make enough to just uh, keep themselves uh, afloat. But uh, there are a Barely. couple of big data things out there, like the whole Kaggle thing, 
which is now owned by Google, if I'm not mistaken. So yep. yeah, I guess it's also yeah. I guess I shouldn't have said that. <laughs> let's let's erase us from the recording. I never said that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> what I did want to say, however, is that one of the reasons I think that um, the people kind of started doing this uh, quote unquote wrong is that they looked at the big guys, but in those days, the big guys, they might have been showing this, the, the software they were using and maybe even how they were using it, but not why they were using it. The mm. use case information wasn't all that clear, except we do web search, we make money. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And if you try to copy something like that, that just wasn't, uh, today is different. Today, if you look at the guys from, I don't know, Uber and uh, LinkedIn, Facebook, they all are pretty verbal on not just what they do, how they do, but also why they do it. Because it's mm. kind of the whole open source thing really blew, blew the lid off of that secrecy in, the, in those yeah. things. But that's pretty recent still. And that, at, the, uh, at the time we're talking about it here now, it was just smaller companies looking at those big five, I'm not sure if there were five or six, I'm not going to count, seeing them doing magic, having a guess at how they're doing it and trying to emulate in a different way and yeah the chances of being successful there were uh, risky yeah indeed indeed so as the as the business is changing and as organizations view of these things are changing of course technology is changing and evolving and improving as is the way of things well of course there's the the issue is it the chicken or the egg thing right was it the organization changes technology or technology changing organizations uh-huh question for far smarter people than me <laughs> <laughs> i think the right answer is both <laughs> Yeah, it's a bit of both. It is a bit of both. But, um, you know, when we're talking about technology changes uh, with regards to this, we're talking about, um, so first of all, things like Yarn coming along and making the fact that you don't just need to spin up a brand new cluster for every new thing that you want to do. You can actually merge clusters. You can get um, the efficiency of running multiple workloads, having multiple teams or divisions doing different things on the same environment, which was today sounds, well, why wouldn't you do that? But back then it was just, there was revolutionary. There was no separation or segregation. And this sort of, this sort of really pulls back to the roots of, of Hadoop and big data and the big web properties and the web dot web 2.0 yeah. sort of companies where, they were single purpose. They didn't solutions. have, yeah, yeah. They didn't have that sort of need for that sort of flexibility. The other thing that I would add is that as the the wide, you know, more widespread adoption came along, people actually started to care about things like security and <laughs> how, I, yeah. which again yeah. sounds crazy yeah. in this context, but things like uh, you know having fully kerberized clusters, having role based and asset based access control is. Uh, is something that really a, a modern enterprise organization basically wouldn't even dream of touching a technology mm-hmm. outside of, you know, maybe a small research experiment, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, a lab, someone's 20% time fiddling around <laughs> with a bit of tech just because it sounds cool. It, it would never get beyond that stage without you being able to say, and yes, we can put, you know, our customer data on this and it's secure and it's resilient and, you know, all these kind of things. Mm-hmm. And perversely, the, the yarn and uh, the security thing, which on the one hand made it much more usable by these organizations, also made it much mm-hmm. more complex. 
because yeah, the true. whole setup became more complex. You had a lot, had a lot more insight. I mean, at that moment, you need a technical architect that really thinks about how you lay out your cluster at that point, because yeah. there's so much that can go wrong, so much more that can go wrong there. And the moment you start securing things, that means you can't use all these back doors, which we're so happy to use in the past, right? Because uh, let's just fudge it a bit; it's going to work. Yeah, just, yeah. Let's, let's just just use this little shortcut here. It's fine. Yeah, I mean, work today and not more, no longer tomorrow. Oh shit! But yeah. yeah, you're totally right. It had to happen because yeah, today you wouldn't be even caught. Definitely with GDPR, you wouldn't be caught dead without the cameras on your clusters. I hope. No, no. <laughs> this was a Indeed. public health announcement. <laughs> well, uh, then you also get so we're we're kind of possibly sliding a little bit off topic here, but oh, it's never. worth mentioning. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Slide off topic, surely not. Um, you know, there, there are now people that are looking at, oh, you know, Kerberos is old hat. You know, we need to we need to move away from that. It needs to be all um, all SAML or all uh, you know, some kind of other. And it's it's all great in principle, but the reality is the way that the underlying Hadoop ecosystem works is Kerberos is the way that you get a secure cluster. Literally, the 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 changes you would need need to make in order to take something like Kerberos out would well would be insane. Would would take yeah. a huge amount of development effort. And you'd basically make and, the same thing again. Yeah, and well, you you just bake bake in some other solution. Now, what I'm not saying is that that means that you can never have any sort of other modern authentication method. Fronting that, absolutely not. Mm-hmm. I mean, things like Knox yep. give you the ability to implement all kinds of single sign-on related um, elements, and that's absolutely fine. But that's you know for users, for consumers exactly. of, that's of the their services. That's not the underlying infrastructure and architecture. And so yes. it's it's a little bit again sliding a little bit off topic. But it's important to important I think one. create those justifications of those yeah. or that sorry that separation of the two different areas that you should really be caring about. No, specifically the areas of the single sign-on that an interactive user does and the whole machine yeah. interconnectivity automated happening, which exactly. just can't be done with uh, OAuth and XAML because there's nobody there yeah. to type in a password. Yep. And Indeed. if you're going to replace Kerber with something else, well, see, I know one company who did. Mm-hmm. Microsoft, we made Active Directory. And you know what it is? It's Kerberos plus LDAP. Kerberos plus LDAP, exactly. <laughs> so yeah, again, it's a, it's a shell on top of it. But yeah, I've actually had customers talk to me about Kerberos. Yeah, that's all. That's so 2000. We don't want to touch it anymore. We want to have Active Directory instead. Congratulations. Okay. <laughs> now, I do agree that the Kerberos CLI could use little work because I'm not sure if they're trying to do it intentionally, but there is some obfuscation going on there from time to time. <laughs> yeah, okay. I would definitely agree that uh, things like error messages and stuff like that, if you're not yeah. familiar with it all, then yeah, there's a bit of a learning curve there. But, you know, it is what it is. It's yeah. what we have there. And, you know, as always, patches are welcome. <laughs> ah, spoken like a true open source aficionado. There we go. I hate you so much. No, I don't. I know. Anyway, reeling you back in. Indeed. Uh, we were talking technology changes. So we had Yarn in there and, uh, yeah, all the things. I mean, um, Yarn also made you need flexible hardware because at this point mm-hmm. you no longer had the same kind of workload running. So you need to have big memory chunks. You have low memory chunk, big disk chunks, slow disk chunks. 
You had uh, HFS steering in there, and now yep. more recently have things like GPU requirements. If you want to do deep learning yep. on Spark, hey, you can do that. Potential on Spark, CNTK on Spark, it just works. You again need specific hardware for that, again making it harder to have a full infrastructure on site. Yeah. Yeah. Well at least make yeah, increasing the uh increasing the maintenance and operation yeah. burden because you've got a variety now of different systems. Which you won't be using all the time because GPU stuff are great when you train your models, but unless you're in the business of training models, you're not gonna do that every day of the week. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you are, I really want to talk to you because I'm going to make a lot of money. <laughs> but I mean, there's, there's companies that are just doing this, that are, are making models and presenting the services online. Yeah, right. They can do, they have to do the sunk cost for that because that's just their business. But if you're just an, a retailer that wants to do prediction and you have to calculate a model once every quarter because in the quarterly results come in, blah, blah, blah. If you're going to buy your GPUs, it's going to be a sunk cost and it's going to be hard to recoup that because those things are not cheap. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, one so, other piece of yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say so. Other other things that are other things that are changing, of course, is up until largely up until this point, we've been primarily talking about Hadoop, and therefore we've been talking about HDFS, the Hadoop Distributed File System. But of course, yeah. no longer the only game in town. Um, you know, for a while there have been um, sort of other scalable file systems things like uh things like ceph um and before it things like gluster mm-hmm. um that never really gained quite the amount of traction i would argue um but then you've also had things like um spe- uh, spectrum scale storage and uh, isolon mm-hmm. um but also as as organizations move to cloud you know clouds have their own completely separate uh, method of having long term uh, long term storage. So things like you know, ADLS in Azure and S3 in um, in AWS and those kind of things. So the the fact is that storage is you know in the old days of Hadoop was very simple. Storage meant HDFS. Now no longer the case. You know, it could be very different depending on what environment you're looking at. And in fact, some some of them will have separate storage um, for different use cases. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we also see kind of a, a shift happening at the moment where the first ones, uh, the S3s and the blob storage from Azure and the Google Cloud Storage, those things, basically what they did there was using WebHDFS to put a, a, a abstraction layer, API layer on top of their blob storage mm-hmm. to make it act as if it was HDFS, but underneath it was just simple blobs which worked fine for things like Hive, but if you want to do an HBase cluster on that, that will cause you problems because you're still, through that API, talking to Blob Store, which is built yeah. for size and cheap, basically. Performance was never an issue there. Now, you mentioned ADLS, and ADLS is one of the new ones. Sorry, putting the Microsoft hat on there. One of the new yeah. ones, which is not just a, a layer on top of Blob Store, but actually has caching layers and stuff like that to do native HDFS-ish um, uh, transactions on the on the storage layer it's, uh, itself directly, and uh, the one thing you didn't mention is uh, things like uh, Kudu and Ozone, which are yeah, actually yeah. storage layers that completely replace HDFS. In the case of Kudu, more predominantly if you're doing uh, NoSQL kind of things, because it's a column store, uh, column based storage kind of layer. Uh, Ozone being developed specifically to uh, get rid of the uh, limitations of HDFS, but uh, uh, most importantly, the, the namespace uh, limitation, memory size there. 
but also being built to be more flexible, to be deployable in clouds, non-cloud and stuff like that. Indeed, indeed. So what does all this mean? What, what what's the next big step? A public cloud to the rescue, of course. My Azure hat is br- br- shining brightly. <laughs> so I could, I'm blinded by it. I may have to put on some sunglasses. <laughs> the cool factor of cloud is indescribable. Uh, not seriously. I mean, the things we're talking about now, we're talking about uh, the, 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 the trifecta for cloud, right? So I'm not sure if it's three, but uh, flexibility, scalability, and freedom of choice. I mean, mm-hmm. not having to buy your own stuff, but being able to deploy it in a cloud of choice, preferably if you can, multiple clouds, because just like before, you want to have two data centers to make sure you're uh, always up and running. Same thing happens when you go to public cloud, usually if you're big enough. But uh, public cloud kind of was able to take away a lot of those limitations for the smaller companies to at least start uh, their big data advanced analytics journeys. And through the technology changes we just talked about, it actually was able to be deployed correctly and performantly in cloud environments. Now, I do want to specify here that we're talking public cloud and not private cloud. Sure, private cloud also has been used, but private cloud is just a data center you own with your own cluster there. So that's more of the original thing. You're just putting a virtualization layer in between without much benefit perhaps except the manageability of your clusters but i've never been a fan of just putting hypervisors in between hadoop clusters for the fun of it public cloud of course is always going to be virtualized because that's the only way we can uh, give you secure environments to be honest so if if we're talking about um private cloud just very briefly the, some of the advantages that people sort of see from private cloud are uh, more, I don't know, I would say more organizational benefits. Yep. So, for example, you know, the, the agility that they get internally uh, in some cases because they're no longer the, the part of the organization having to care about it takes me three months to provision new hardware because their internal quote-unquote cloud provider has to deal with that pain instead, and they do the forecasting and, and all that sort of thing. So I, I get I get why you say in that. Typically, I'm, it doesn't work that way, because if you want to install a Hadoop cluster, you need X servers, and then that internal cloud provider is going to have to source that for you. You'll still have to wait. I mean, the big public clouds out there, the, the, the scale they're running at, they'll always have something lying around that you can use. If you're in internal data centers, you just don't have a couple of dozen servers lying around not doing anything at any given time. So uh, I often see it happen when uh, organizations already have a virtualized infrastructure, already have a uh, VMware or whatever brand they use layer on top of their entire infrastructure, and you want to put a Hadoop cluster in there. Yeah, well, obviously, you will have to do it on the uh, uh, virtual uh, layer at that point. But yeah. I'm not entirely convinced that your argument actually works in practice. Although I have been, yeah. I have heard it used a yeah. lot. <laughs> I I have so I have seen it used, and I I have seen it in operation, and it it's very much dependent on the organization. Mm-hmm. Some True. organizations do pull it off because that separation of this is my workload versus mm-hmm. uh, you know this I I own the data center actually can also help to simplify that whole process. So I have seen it work. I'm, I'll, I, I would admit that I am also personally 
not a fan of that approach, but you know, each to their own. And uh, you know, in the end, if it works, do, yeah, it works. If, if, they, if you're happy with it and it works, then knock yourself out. It's always a balancing of needs versus requirements and what the cost is. And if you can figure yeah. something out that just works well for you, then hey, more power to you. Indeed. Anyway, let's get back to the notes. We had notes, remember? We did. We did. I mean, occasionally we even refer to them. You never know. Um, so yeah, I talked about uh, the whole idea of cloud. So you, you can put it in there when you need it. You can throw it away if you don't need it. So back my example for cheap use, for an example, if you have a Hadoop cluster that you only need once a month to do that machine learning algorithm training, then just firing it up in the cloud once a month or once a week is going to be a cost saving versus having a deployment on premise, unless you're able to use that deployment on premise for other things, Mm -hmm. obviously. So yeah, anything else you want to talk about this part of it? I think really that it's, it's a question of, um, some people maybe make the initial jump to cloud and maybe some things don't entirely go as expected. Um, <laughs> sometimes I think this is because people just uh, believe the myth that cloud is cheap and uh, cloud. I have said the myth that cloud is always cheap. Yeah. I, I yeah, I, I'll, I'll uh, accept I'll that, that statement. <laughs> um, and I, I think you need to understand that cloud can certainly be mm-hmm. cheaper, but in many cases you will have to adjust your, you know, your methods of working, yes. your expectations for what this sort of infrastructure should look like and how it should operate. You need to accept a lot of the, you know, cloud native tenants yeah, in order to gain the benefits from it. Otherwise. If you just try and run something in the cloud like you ran it on-prem, I mean, yes, you can do it. You absolutely can. Yeah, but you shouldn't. And it absolutely will cost you a boatload. Um, (laughs) Yeah, but apart from that as well, you see a lot of times that people have a data center, on uh, their own data center, and it doesn't work well, it doesn't work well, it doesn't work well. So let's move that same thing, lift and shift it to the cloud, and it's going to solve the problems. Yeah, no. no. <laughs> As you say, you really have to look at the way cloud works because decoupled deployments are very important in cloud because you don't have as much control. So things will sometimes not respond in the way you expect it to respond. And your your deployment, your infrastructure needs to be able to work with that. So yeah. going to cloud, your first steps will probably mean you get a little bit more complexity in there because you're learning a new, not just a new kind of hardware, but a new way of thinking about the hardware. Yeah, very much so. And of course, so, as I, I just want no. to say the last part there, because yeah. I see you already uh, crossed it out, but I just want to do mention this, that if you are Google, if you are Microsoft, I mean, Microsoft is never going to go to a public cloud for their stuff because we're big enough. If you're Facebook, if you're LinkedIn, you're big enough to have huge clusters on-premise and keep them running all the time. And at that point your benefits towards flexibility, being able to shut down or, or, or delete your Hadoop cluster doesn't really factor in anymore because it needs to be running all the time anyway. And at that point as well, a cloud solution may not be what you're looking for. But, I mean, we said so, on-prem yeah, is best, maybe. Hadoop is best, maybe. on cloud, so... So, so mix mix them all together in a big bucket, and then, then pour it out into a mold, and what you get is hybrid cloud. 
Yay! <laughs> well, I've said say hybrid because you say hybrid cloud. You say you give more predominance to cloud, but just hybrid. And as we've been saying before, on, on, on different top subjects, use a tool that fits best for what you want to do at that point. Yeah. And in this, in the Hadoop world, in the big data world today, hybrid basically is the way to go because even the large organizations that have the that, that, that have a reason to have that massive installation in on-premise, they still want a cloud burst from time to time to just have a couple of data well, scientists work a little well, bit. Well, let this. me just let me just pause you right. Yeah, there, pause because we we need to we need to have a little chat. Oh, we need to have God. a little chat about a certain kind of person, a certain kind of person that just comes up to you and just says, "It's fine, just burst into the cloud," <laughs> and then probably like. I don't know. Makes makes some kind of strange pose and zips off into the into the sunlight. Um, when we're talking about people cloud bursting, quote unquote, or bursting into the cloud, um, we're talking about zero latency networking. Yes, which of course does not exist. Oh, really? Um, <laughs> yeah, sad but true. Um, we're we're what we're talking about. Or, no, let's say what we're not. Talking about. <laughs> yeah, what we're not clear. talking about is. Oh, I'm running this thing on prem. Uh, it's running out of uh, you know available resources. Let me just grab some extra capacity from the cloud, and now I can run you know 120 percent, or 130 percent, or 140 percent of what I was already running. Technically, totally possible. Technically, absolutely possible. Um, Realistically, <laughs> total disaster. Like introducing random latencies, introducing you know, changes like that, where all of a sudden you've got you know ten or twenty percent of your data nodes that just don't respond in any where like the kind same kind of um, response speeds that you expect from everything else. It's just a horrible, horrible, horrible idea, and yet people still. I don't. People that have some form of clue don't talk about it so much now um i think that has been beaten out of most people yeah. but i would say that it's usually when people think about hybrid that aren't in this space it is their first thought it is their first oh so i could just run a small environment you know 24 7 and then when i want to do by my big you know, whatever it might be, job at the end of the quarter, I just you know rent some extra extra compute, and and it all just works seamlessly. That's not yeah. no. One of the the really hard examples I've lived through was a company that was so afraid to lose their data, they wanted to keep their data on premise, but have all the compute in the cloud. Right. Again, technically, yes. yeah, you can sign off. Technically, on that, absolutely possible. You know, stand up a bundle. stand up a, a VPC, and away you go. And again, Wonderful it doesn't stuff. solve the problem because the moment that you start computing on that data, your data will get moved in memory to the cloud environment. So it will yeah. be there. You don't solve any problems there. So yeah, we're not talking so, about splitting clusters when we're talking indeed. hybrid. So let's let's different yeah. Clusters. So tell us, tell us, Jan, educate us. Educate our listeners, our five remaining listeners. What, <laughs> I think it's what three are we now. focusing on? <laughs> yeah, you're probably right. It could only be two. Um, so both of our mums. Um, so <laughs> hybrid cloud. What we, when we're talking about hybrid cloud, what do we actually mean? It means just have certain workloads that run on premise and other workloads on different structures running in the cloud. Now they can share data, but that data mm -hmm. typically will be copies. They will be copied to the cloud. Or reverse, because this is also where the gravity of data comes in. 
quite often, exactly. if your data originates in the cloud, your big chunk of data will just remain in the cloud, but some aggregates, some summarizations can filter down, be copied to the on-premise environment to do stuff there. And that way you can have two separate data stores. You still need yep. to figure out your governance somewhere because definitely yep. GDPR and stuff, you need to be able to figure out what comes from where and what shouldn't get together again. But yep. in this case, you can move your data across two, two places because reasons, and there's plenty of reasons why this might be uh, might be a good solution for you. In that case, you will also have compute on both ends. Yeah, very much so. But this is an example so. where your Gravitas was in the cloud, in the reverse way. It's also possible that all your data is generated on-prem, and that's where you do all of your first-line analytics. But you're a multinational company, and you've got people working in the Netherlands and people working in uh, Pakistan. The people in India, Pakistan, whatever, and the other side of the world, they'll have very bad latency working on your data here, so it makes sense to move some data there. And then, hey, if you moved in the cloud, it makes sense, because it's easy. But you're not going to move everything in the cloud at that point. You just give them what they need. Yep. That's also a little bit how the, the whole data lake idea changed. And I'm coming off, uh, of course, here, off beast because <laughs> I'm just thinking of this now. Uh, traditionally, a data lake was a physical fenced garden, let's say. This is the, this is the, the stack of disks where my data resides. Today, I, I, for me, a data lake is much more a security boundary. A, a, governed, yeah. a, a, a ring of governance across multiple places of data, and ACFS being a very important one there, but things like Hive stores and even SQL databases and uh, Spark data frames also being part of your data lake. So that also is what the cloud allows you to do, to have that data lake much more, uh, not fragmented, because that's what I'm talking about, but more diverse in shape and size. Yeah, Absolutely agree. Absolutely agree. And the very few organizations ever managed that perfect dream of the data lake. We saw I mean that was that was the that was the story going back maybe, you know, four or five years ago. That's that's what we were all sort of working towards mm-hmm. was that single data lake where everything lived and and the world would be a wonderful place. But really the world moved on from that point. Yeah, there was an alternative so, there, but now. Yeah, so so now what we're talking about is more of a more along that that continued line of evolution. We're talking about um, you know people ended up standing up multiple data lakes in some in some cases, even though they they were still on prem because they had reasons for doing that. Yep. They had you know separated areas of of governance mm-hmm. and and as you say, security boundaries that they just did not want to cross. Yep. Uh, Classic one is the the typical sort of business and analytics data lake and a cybersecurity data lake. You know, those those kind of things are um, quite commonplace to keep separate. But then, that was Dave's plug for Metron for the day. Absolutely, <laughs> got to get got to get one in every episode. <laughs> otherwise, uh, otherwise my name gets cut. So the the sort of this evolution towards cloud is just a, a further extension of that same that same story, that mm-hmm. same picture. And one thing to be careful, though, in this new uh, new idea of uh, data lakes is you do still want to avoid copying data as much as possible. Because yeah. every time you copy your data, you duplicate your GDPR nonsense. And yeah. in a perfect world, you wouldn't care, but the world isn't perfect, and neither is the data, for that matter. So you try to avoid copying data as much as possible, and there's plenty of things, a lot of virtual table and... Uh, well, there's this little uh, marketing term called data abstraction or whatever it's called again, virtual data sources and stuff. There's a lot of ways of getting around copying, real making real bit-per-bit copies. 
So yep. if you can avoid the, the real copying, it does help you govern your data with a lot more security. Sometimes it just has to happen because that's just why it is. I mean, the, yep. even in the early days, you had data marts. Nobody had a website talking directly to your Hadoop cluster. There was pretty much always a data mart in between. Some yep. exceptions were there, definitely. Um, that still exists, but more than that exists today as well. But again, yeah. if you took, take, just look at Hive, serialization, serialization functions are a great way of avoiding uh, needless copying, or at least in between copying. Uh, how do you call that? Uh, intermediate copying of, of data. Yeah, yeah. So do take a look at that and uh, save you some headaches. Indeed. Indeed. So I think we can safely say that everybody, every time somebody says burst to the cloud, a, a fairy or possibly a puppy dies. So we should stop saying that. <laughs> we should also stop saying data is the new oil because <laughs> then a puppy drowns. Um, and I think it's safe to say that the majority of organizations now are moving towards some kind of hybrid story yeah. um, between on-prem and cloud. And some people are you know, further along this journey and they're mm-hmm. looking at actually moving totally into cloud and actually they're now looking at their what their multi-cloud vendor strategy is. Mm-hmm. Um, and other organizations are you know, earlier on in that journey and they're just kind of at the early stages of we're still trying to get our heads around this data lake thing, but we see that the rest of the world is also moving on, so we need to fast track our our sort of our roadmap to the cloud anyway. Yeah. And I think this is this oh. is always going to be the case. The people that follow on later get a lot of the benefits and a lot of the lessons yeah. learned by the early adopters. Yeah, yeah definitely. And, and again, make sure you have good partners to help you in this, because it can be a Absolutely. scary step to move from cloud to prem or from prem to cloud because it's both ways it's a different way of working things so make sure you talk to the right people that actually know what it's doing um yep. make sure the people no, have the technical no need knowledge. to struggle alone there's plenty of people that have you know spent their time and effort and you know got those battle scars and and actually you know learned a lot along the mm-hmm. way so, you know, no need to struggle alone. There's plenty of people that will out there that will help yeah. you find your way. And be prepared to be flexible because the whole move into cloud has also been pushed a bit because it needs to be iterative and quickly improving and uh, scrum and blah, blah, blah. Uh, traditional data centers were built and in the next 10 years, nothing much changed. Maybe some hardware labels changed, but basically the whole structure stayed the same. A movement to cloud will also allow you to be flexible, allow you to iterate faster, but it also means your business needs to be able to contain that, be able to do that, because not all businesses are ready for that. So that's also part of the journey that you might need some help with. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Of course, yeah, I'm a little biased here because my customers are usually uh, cloud-centric, also hybrid, yep. but mostly cloud-centric. I'm assuming you see more uh, on-prem uh, Deployments and I do. No, I, I, well, I probably see more on-prem deployments than you do, but I would say the mix is definitely rapidly shifting yeah. towards more and more cloud, uh, without a doubt. Yeah. The, there are very, very few organisations I talk to today that are just on-prem, yeah, or yeah. at the very least, are quite a long way along. Uh, you know, most organisations are at the very least quite a long way along their their sort of understanding of what their cloud journey is going to be. Yeah, yeah. Uh, they might not be all the way there yet, but yeah, I, I think that uh, it's just the way things go. It's just the yeah. way that uh, the technology and 
and the and the business is evolving. Uh, it's also very geographical geography and industry dependent how far certain organizations are because yeah. different industries also move at a different pace. Yeah, different regulations mm-hmm. in some cases are constraining maybe what uh, what organizations may wish to do from an innovation perspective but you know that that's always going to be the case and regulations usually do end up catching up with um, the technology eventually and and we'll see those those industries kind of spring ahead no doubt yeah, yeah, yeah. oh i, I want to go i'm going to put my microsoft hat on again because you talked about Kerberos and security is very important one of the things i hear a lot of the times is that cloud is not secure because it's cloud uh, that's a myth. I'm not going to say yeah. cloud is always secure. That's a myth too. It all depends on how you deploy your stuff. Because in just the end, like it's an infrastructure. Else. And it can be just as secure as, a, as you have today. And it can be just as insecure as today. Again, make sure you get good guidance. Do good things. And in my experience, I often see a lot of skeletons fall, drop out of the closet when people look at their on-prem security when they're trying to move to the cloud and seeing how Oh, we thought we were secure, but hmm, those back doors were still in place there. <laughs> so. Well, I mean, there are just as many data breaches that happen across multiple different infrastructures. Um, it definitely, cloud is not the savior, but it's also it's also certainly not uh, going to make things worse either. So, yeah, exactly as you were saying, as you uh, as you make those changes, it's a good time to reinvestigate and reinvest time and effort in looking at exactly what you're doing. I think also for the, for the people that are the first adopters, they've been in this now for, well, let's say about 10 years, I'd say. Mm-hmm. I think it's time for them also to take a look at what they have, and it's a good time to just move on to a, to a new deployment, to, to upgrade to the, the new way of working if they haven't done it yet. Because anything that's been running for 10 years without change... There's got to be something wrong there, right? I mean, I, I'm almost 50, so I know there's a lot wrong with me. So there's, there's five <laughs> sets of things wrong with you. <laughs> no, it's exponential, right? <laughs> oh, okay, okay. Uh, I, sorry, I don't have enough graph paper for that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Anything else you want to add? No, I'm depressed enough now. I think uh, our last listener has now departed. Yep. And in that case, <laughs> that is about all the time we have for today. Hope you enjoyed this cloudy serving of bite-sized big data. Right. We'll be back next week with a brand new episode. Until then, please go to www.roaringelephant.org where you can find more information, including a feedback form. You can also follow us on Twitter using the Hadoopcast tag and contact us by email to podcast at roaringelephant.org with any thoughts, comments, criticisms, and other feedback. Until then, my name is Dave. And my name is John. And we look forward to talking to you next week. Bye-bye. See you then.